1: You are listening to Kevin and Quarry on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. One of the great things about working on Monument Circle in the morning, quite frankly, is being able to watch the sunrise each and every day, and this day is a really good one. As a matter of fact, over the winter sometimes it gets a little rough (laughs) because it's dark and then overcast for a long time, but a good-looking start here on a Thursday morning. Good morning to you. Jake Quarry along with Mark and Kevin Bowen is back with us on Monday, Sam Fritz, on the big board and as the sun rises this morning market also rises on if we want to call it that the second half of the season sounds weird to say when there's 22 games left but uh, the post all-star break portion of the Pacers schedule tonight, the Fieldhouse against Boston.
2: Yep, and one of the guys we're going to bring in now uh, always friendly with us, always answering the phone at 8.30 on the Thursday despite him possibly still sleeping in at this point. Fieldhouse file, Scott Agnes, he joins us now on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Scott, hope you're doing well, and I know you were down at Salt Lake City for the All-Star game. Uh, Just curious, uh, your overall thoughts on the event itself.
0: Yeah, good morning, Mark. It it was a a good, but long five days with just so much going on and so much to cover because the Pacers had seemingly someone in every event on Friday, then Saturday, and then Sunday, which was really special, I think, for this franchise. But my overwhelming takeaway from the experience was that it didn't feel like Salt Lake was involved or connected or I had any grand takeaway about the city. And I know when Indy hosts it next year – That won't at all be the case, but otherwise, it it was a good experience. I had no trouble with it, Um, but it it, it was good to see the guys on Friday night win and then the the fun back-and-forth Saturday between Halliburton and Heald in the three-point contest. I thought for sure one of them would get it.
2: That's what I was going to say is that that Salt Lake City was almost the perfect host before Indianapolis because from everything I kind of saw online, it was kind of a dud, dud venue from what i saw is that what you, your takeaway was with that too that wasn't just was just wasn't very didn't feel like an all-star game was being hosted there
0: to me it probably the best analogy might be the big 10 tournament when it's in indianapolis right you got probably indie cars on the circle you got signage everywhere you have signage greeting them at the airport you know it has taken over all local tv stations are going live outside I'm telling you, not until Sunday did you feel like, oh, there's something going on in town. There's no reason you couldn't have just picked up this venue and taken it to Louisville or Cincinnati or wherever and just been another game. And so that that was the one thing that, that jumped out to me in all of this. I, I thought they did a, a fine job, but it, it did not feel like it was a, a – it, it had taken over the downtown by any means. There was only uh, one kind of downtown – thing four or five blocks south that was a, a special activity and that was put on by nike that was clearly part of the event um i don't know it, it was just different for sure uh and i, I think that's where i know indy is going to make it a lot more um they're going to make it where indy is showcased they're going to make it where indie is um it leaves people's minds and because the goal on all this, I think, is for Indy to bring back some conventions and such once people experience the town some for the first time.
1: So, Scott, this might be a better question, admittedly, for like civic planners of it or perhaps like Danny Lopez and the group that was out examining things for the Pacers. But, you know, when the Super Bowl was here, and I get the Super Bowl and the NBA All-Star Game a little bit different because of the length of time that is going into it. In terms of the events going on. But when the Super Bowl was here, I think there was expectation by the city that it would expand. You know, people were like, you know, restaurants in Broaddor were prepping for it. And down off Fountain Square and everything else. And then it turns out everything was just epicentered in the the downtown quadrant. And it never really went beyond that. It was massive for that area. But it didn't have, I think, the totality of typical reach that people had hoped for the Super Bowl. Do you think that there is plan, or can you give us an idea to your understanding of where what all will take place beyond just at the Fieldhouse itself for the All Star Game when it comes here?
0: So the only thing that we know for certain is that the All Star Game, the Sunday night featured event, will be at the Fieldhouse. The rest is kind of to be determined, and so you know maybe you have All Star Saturday night or the rookie. Uh, rising stars over at Lucas Oil Stadium. The, the one big idea behind all of that is, you know, Indy does not host this event with any regularity. This will be, you know, the first time in almost 40 years. Well, which so is funny because the,
1: the other time it did it, it was the other way around, right? Yep. You had all of the auxiliary right. events taking place at uh, Market Square, the dunk contest, whatever else, and then the game itself was at the Dome, which was being, you know, obviously a new showcase for the Dome.
0: Yeah, and, and, and more to that, though, it that allows for more people to attend the game and to be part of it and to feel part of it. And I think that's one thing they're conscious of here is that they don't want this just to be an outsider event because uh, one thing fans should know is one of the great hesitations all along in all of this for any franchise is, is it's frustrating uh, making season ticket holders frustrated because they aren't able to get to events. Because um, what you should know is this is an NBA event that is, put on in collaboration with the host city this is not the host city you know setting the plan and doing things their way there's a team of people at the nba that this is all they do so for one uh, i think the thing that's going to be a a great strength jake for the city as everyone of uh, as we all know is how everything is right there within what half mile 0.7 miles and that was not the case for Salt Lake City. You had to get on, uh, you know, a bus and drive what felt like 20 minutes east to the University of Utah for media availabilities. For uh, that's where the celebrity game was. I'm, I'm guessing. I don't know this. That probably seems like a convention center type event. Um, and. Also, the the all-star practices, rising star practices were over at the University of Utah. There's no reason those aren't at the field house or at the Convention Center or at Lucas Oil Stadium, for that matter. And so those, those things have not been determined. They still have to be negotiated and ironed out. But having everything right here, I mean, that will allow for those that are visiting to stay within a skywalk if it's not nice out. Um, and by the way, one of my grand takeaways as well, it Salt Lake City did not snow, I figured we'd be dealing with snow. You'd need boots every single day. There was a little bit of snow one night at night. Um, but other than that, it was v- full of sunshine more than Denver than I'm used to. So uh, that surprised me about Salt Lake City.
2: He's Scott Agnes of the Fieldhouse Files, also contributor on 1075thefan.com, as well as some Pacer stuff. Scott, last All-Star Game question for me, but ratings were really down this year. Uh, how would you fix the All-Star Game itself ahead of next year's event in Indy?
0: I would say the number one thing you need is for the the elite stars to take it seriously, and then everybody else will fall in line. After the game, I was asking Tyrese, you know, how do you feel about this? Drew Holiday, I was kind of the same way because, you know, Drew's a a defensive-minded player, and he was like, eh, you know what? I didn't mind it too much. Um, There's a lot going on this weekend, and on top of that, uh, you know, if I could make a half-court shot, I would be taking them too. So, uh, and then Tyrese is, you know, a young guy, I think – 12 of the players involved were just in their first or second year. So they're they're following LeBron and Giannis. And so it didn't help that, you know, Giannis played 20 seconds and LeBron didn't play the second half. And I, I don't know why these guys, um, especially when it comes to the dunk contest, um, would even want, need additional, like, uh, compensation, let's say, to to be enticed to do this. Because if you remember even, like, to bring about local Glenn Robinson, the third became a, you know, people became aware of him in the NBA when he went to the dunk contest and had great success. So that's what you need it to be about. Again, I don't think you'll ever get the uh, top guys, but what if you could get that second or third tier guys, a John Morant, to be in the dunk contest, for example, like we saw his, his best dunk of his NBA career here in Indianapolis. So for me, it's, it's these guys taking it a little bit more seriously. Um, and, and I don't know, it's it's tough when you go into that that all-star game, right, and you have a draft that lasts a half an hour, and then you have a concert after that that lasts a half an hour. Then they go back out for warm-ups. So I almost wonder if they were setting them up themselves up for a little bit of failure when um, you, you kind of make the game secondary because it then did feel that way.
1: Let me tell you a, a something I heard discussed this morning, Scott. Scott Agnes is our guest from Fieldhouse Files he's on the Payless Stickers hotline. You can see his work also on our website at 1075thefan.com. Scott, in terms of the All-Star game, and I did get a I saw yesterday somebody send a thing out saying that the Daytona 500 did like 72% the ratings or whatever the NBA All-Star game. I think it's a little unfair of a comparison because the Daytona 500 is the NBA Finals of racing. I know it's not the finals, but it's the biggest race in NASCAR you would have to compare, the apples to apples would be comparing it to the ratings of the All-Star race when that takes place, you know, midway through the NASCAR season. But this morning on this radio station, I heard Keyshawn Johnson and Jason Williams, I believe it was, discussing um, on the ESPN Radio Morning Show, and I thought it was an interesting proposal. The Major League Baseball All-Star game started waning, people started losing interest in it, and then... They did the the process by which the may or the World Series home field advantage was determined by the winner of the All Star game. Would it pump juice into the NBA All Star game if they went back to having it be Eastern All Stars versus Western All Stars, with the winning team determining the home court advantage of the NBA Finals? Hmm, yeah, I, I personally
0: don't think I'd be a fan of that. Just knowing you know, what the treatment of an all-star game has been. I do agree there needs to be some kind of competitiveness brought up, right, Um, with all of this. I don't know what that might be here. I've heard someone even mention international versus U.S. to add some competitive fire to this. But but
1: are there – well, yeah, I guess you've got a a fair amount. I think there were
0: seven or nine international guys, I believe. Um, The thing is, though, you – when I think international, you think of the guys that really compete out there. But Luka might have been the ultimate one that was taking it easy. Um, that guy had no interest in playing that game.
1: Um, I just – I saw too many possessions where it was literally like – Nikola Jokic looked like he didn't know what to do when the ball came to him, and everybody else was just like, okay. The, the most awkward part of the game, it was kind of like when you listen to – conversations where people don't know who's like, like if you listen to a radio show quite frankly, where people don't know whose turn it is to talk and there's like these pregnant pauses and it's just awkward. That's kind of what the All-Star game felt like half the time on the offensive set, Scott. Like whoever got the ball, it was like they were looking at each other like, uh, okay who, who, who's gonna go here? You know what I mean? And it was rough. Yeah, it's
0: one of those that no one could be happy about the way in which that All-Star game was played and there's no obvious fix. The one, I mean, the same thing goes for the dunk contest here as well like it's not been honestly the best thing that a g-league player comes in and wins the whole thing right what does it say about the rest of the league but also you know you wonder who else is actually pushing to be in it at this point so that, that's another thing that they have to figure out It's the the ratings conversation is so nuanced because outside of the nfl tankings are bad everywhere right that's right.
2: Mercifully, the All Star game All Star break is over now, and the Pacers get back on the court tonight when they take on the Boston Celtics. Scott, what are you expecting to see from the Pacers in these final twenty two games?
0: I think this is a situation where it's it, let's reset and go back to what we were discussing at the the beginning of the season, where it was taking each game and trying to get something out of it, trying to you know have some player development and some growth, which I think is good. Um, I thought it was notable. How you know they're they're obviously you know trying to make a push here, but that's not the ultimate focus towards the end of the season with these twenty game twenty two games. So uh I, I think that's the good thing here. But to start off with Boston is tough, and then after that you got eleven of the next fourteen games on the road. So that that's going to be awfully difficult
1: for this team. Scott, in terms of the, the home stretch here, I think we know realistically that. It is not a push towards the playoffs, I don't think, for the Pacers, or certainly, you know, towards a deep playoff run. So uh, give me two guys, two players that the last 22 games are the most important for. And I don't mean Benedict Matherin because maybe he's going to be starting and and getting more of an elevated role, but two guys that in terms of if you were to ask Rick Carlisle, Chad and Kevin Pritchard that they want to give the hardest, longest look at over these 22 games, to figure out whether they are guys they roll with or guys they parlay?
0: Yeah, the, the first thought I think then would auto- automatically become Jalen Smith and Isaiah Jackson, but really, too, I'd want to throw in Jordan Wara there. As you try to figure out what he is, can he be part of this team moving forward? And if so, in what ways will he be able to contribute to what they're trying to do? So, yeah, you're right. So many of them, they already know their roles. We know exactly the way in which they can contribute. Like. We don't need to see more from Tyrese or Miles or Buddy Heald for that matter. So I would like some more clarity in that front court um, for certain. I think we also, by the way, know exactly what Daniel Tice can look like if he is part of that group come the summer. Um, so for me, it goes with the big men with Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, and what more
1: can they show us
0: um, here for the final of 22?
1: Scott, appreciate it as always, and look forward to – Talking to you and reading about what happens here over the next couple of months to wrap up the season. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, right, man. Scott Agnes on the Payless Liquors Hotline. This text I just got. Jake, I'm 60. Uh, joining us now on the Payless Liquors Hotline, and I'm sure thrilled to be doing so, you can read his work at The Athletic covering the Indianapolis Colts, one of the premier writers in central Indiana. Zach Kiefer joins us. Zach, I'll begin right away with this. It feels like we have been awaiting, like, official word of some changes on the Colts coaching staff, and then I wonder if it's conjecture or if some of it is absolutely inevitable. Where do things stand right now in terms of kind of who's in or who's out or what needs to be filled for Shane Steichen's staff?
3: Yeah, that's a good question, Jake. And at this point, you're kind of just, you know, sort of hedging towards when it's official, right, when the team announces it, when these contracts are signed. But my understanding is Shane Sykes basically just locked himself in his room in his office the last couple weeks and has just been working nonstop trying to fill out the staff, obviously with the Combine starting next week. I do know Reggie Wayne has been at the facility a lot of late, and that would indicate to me that he's going to be back. He is under contract for another year. Now, again, that's going to be Shane Strickland's decision. But I know the players, the receivers, want Reggie to be back. It felt like Reggie wanted to be back. So that's a big one on offense. You know, they're, they're probably closing in on an offensive line hire, I believe. I believe, and don't quote me on this, that it's the assistant offensive line coach for the Philadelphia Eagles. If that would make sense. with where Steichen is coming from. Jim Bob Cooter is in line to become the offensive coordinator. And I really feel that it's going to be Gus Bradley on defense, and I think he's going to keep all of his assistants. Nate Ollie to run the defensive line, Richard Smith to run the linebackers, and then Ron Miles in the back end for the secondary. So they're closing in on that. But, again, nothing's officially official until these guys sign their contracts and the team announces it.
2: How, how big of a speed bump, Zach, uh, would the Bubba Ventron leaving for Cleveland be for Shane Steig and trying to fill out that staff ahead of the Combine?
3: Yeah, my understanding is a couple days ago this was going to happen. He was going to go to Cleveland. Obviously, he played there. Um, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think Bubba's a really good coach, and that matters. But you can find a special teams coordinator at this point in the game. There's a lot of special teams assistants that are dying for their opportunity. Here's one. Colts have some talent on special teams. Um, I I think that's going to happen. He's going to go to Cleveland, and they're going to have to fill – that void so it looks like Gus Bradley would be the only coordinator to return in 2023
1: you know Zach what's interesting to me we were talking about this earlier during the course of the season when it was clear that things were not going well from a wins losses standpoint with Jeff Saturday as the interim head coach there was a lot of sentiment certainly we had it on this program I don't know if you did in your inbox but of people that were like Jeff Saturday should be the offensive line coach and not the head coach. And, you know, hire a head coach and bring him back as offense, to coach this offensive line. And that sentiment was whispered out there. But then once that job actually became available, I've never heard his name mentioned. Um, it would make sense why Shane Steichen wouldn't necessarily, at no fault of Jeff Saturday as a guy. But I, I don't know that I would want the guy that also was vying for the same job I got, that the owner really likes, hanging around, right, do you think Saturday had any interest in that position, or do you think his name was whispered about at all internally? No,
3: Jake, to, to answer your last question, he didn't He didn't have any interest in the in the offensive line coaching job, which is kind of where it makes sense for him to be, to be completely honest. And, look, this is a guy that they came to twice before to come coach the offensive line. He turned them down, wanting to spend more time with his family. So for Jeff Saturday, from everything I understand, this was – head coach or bust, and we didn't get the head coaching job, I don't believe he's in the cards at all for the offensive line job. Again, and I think he kind of tiptoed onto something with Shane Steichen. It's not ideal. It wouldn't be a deal breaker, but I just don't think it's perfect to have the guy you replaced back on staff in a different role working under you. I think it's just time to move forward with Steichen. And it's my understanding that Jeff Saturday had no interest at all in any other job besides the head
1: coaching job. And I understand both standpoints. I mean, I get why Saturday would say, you know what, I was the head coach. I don't necessarily want to, although it might be in Saturdays, if head coach is, again, the trajectory that he wants to go, and I don't know that for certain, I think he wanted this job. I don't necessarily think that that means he wants any head coaching job. If he did, then probably starting a few rungs down and working your way back up would be advisable, um, but again, Zach, if I'm stiking it, or Ballard, either one, and I think to myself, you know what, I know how much the owner loved Jeff Saturday, and I wanted to go in another direction, i just assume not crack that door back open, right?
3: Yeah, and it, it's just a messy road to go down, because what if they're three and five? You know, what if, what if that happens, right. and you've got a guy in the building who, as you just mentioned, has... You know, a ton of affection from the owner. Like, that's not going to change, even after one and seven and an 87 point differential. So, I just feel like it's a clean break. It's time to move on. Look, this is just a disaster. It happened. It was a mistake by Jim Mersey, in my opinion. They went one and seven. They were, it was embarrassing down the stretch. Those are the words used by a lot of players. But you got a gift at the end of it. You got a gift. You got a fourth overall pick. Now you can turn the page with a quarterback coach. And, and the new quarterback and a new era, and I just feel like lingering on and, and trying to grab back towards the glory days, which is really what this was, right? It was, Jim said, grabbing back to those 2000s with Peyton and Marvin and Jeff Saturday. That that's a mistake. This team needs to move on. They need to move forward, and they need to find a new way forward.
2: Zach here for the Athletic, joining Kevin Querrey, 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Uh, you mentioned that the offensive line coach is likely coming from the Eagles staff. Zach, does that is that names you're hearing floated for the special teams coordinator position coming from Philadelphia? Or are you hearing any other names that might be in-house or elsewhere? What are you hearing on that front?
3: Haven't heard any names on the special teams front. And a lot of questions I'm getting at this point are why would the Colts let Bubba out of his contract to go essentially make a lateral move, right? They could have blocked that. The reality is this. You know, it's a Shane Steichen decision. The guy should be able to hire whoever he wants. I don't know for a fact if he wants Bubba to stay or if he wants Bubba to go, but that's a head coaching decision that he should be allowed to make. And then secondly, I mean, Bubba was the guy that should have been the interim coach. I think everybody in the organization probably agrees with that. A lot of the players told me that. And if Bubba's ticked off at the Colts, I kind of blame him, to be honest. He didn't get the interim head coaching job, and they gave it to someone who's far less qualified. And then he interviewed for the full-time head coaching job and only got one interview. I think Bubba's a really good coach. But if he doesn't want to be here, you can't force him to be here. And even though you have that power in terms of keeping him in his contract and not allowing him to make a lateral move to the Cleveland Browns, you want guys who are going to be about this place. And if Bubba doesn't want to be here right now, you gotta let him go and you gotta go find another coach. And this is this is the this is the risk you made when you hired Shane Steichen and and you kind of go into this understanding that there's gonna be a lot of turnover and there should be. On one side of the ball, that's offense, because they need a lot of new coaches on that side.
1: You know, it's interesting with Bubba Ventrone, Zach. I think sometimes, and I'm not saying this isn't the case, but I look at it and I think to myself, okay, and I think you make a really good point, and your your colleague, you know, a couple of your colleagues have pointed out the same. I think when we talked to Bob about it. I'm sitting there saying to myself, maybe he's upset because he didn't get the head coaching job, and it was like, nah, it's probably more so the interim job, right? That he didn't, he yeah. didn't get the interim job, but, but then I also look at it and I'm like, you know what? If I'm not mistaken, he's from the Pittsburgh area, and you know that's co- that's closer to Cleveland than Indianapolis is, and quite frankly, I, once you know the guy's forty years old, I have no idea his family situation. But sometimes it's as simple Zach, as, you know, what he wants to be closer to, like where his aging parents live or his uncle lives, or you know what, you know what I mean. Like sometimes we overthink it. Sometimes guys just want to be close to home, you know? Yeah, and and where did Bubba ventrone
3: star in the NFL? Right, I mean, you know, I right. Star as a you know a little bit of a stretch, but he's a stud special teamer for the Cleveland Browns, and and I get it. And and honestly, like and, and you guys know this, like it's it's fun to be wanted. It's fun to get calls from other places and say, hey, we you want you to come here. And and I think you're right, Jake. I don't think it's the head coaching job because it's very difficult to do that from a special teams coordinator. It's only happened a couple times. But the interim coaching job, a lot of players told me straight up that, like, when Frank was fired, they just assumed it was Bubba. They didn't even give him much thought. And for him to not get that job and then to go outside the building for someone who wasn't even here in training camp and during the season, I mean, there's no way that sat well with him. And, and I'm sure he worked well with Jeff Saturday. Everybody had good things to say about Jeff Saturday. But just the fact that he was bypassed like that and almost taken for granted, it wouldn't be a stretch to assume that that ruffled some feathers within Bubba Bentron. And when you get a call from the Cleveland Browns, a place that's closer to home, like you said, he went to Villanova. He's a Pennsylvania guy. And it's a little bit closer to that and um, a place you played really well out in your career. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that much.
1: You know, I have to just trust you, Zach, when you talk about the sentiments and feelings of being wanted with options. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. That experience on, you haven't had I, mean, I was on the beach for 20 months, and I had to pay my way over here. You know what I mean? So I'll, I'll just believe you on that. Um, Zach, Zach Kiefer, by the way, is our guest on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Um, Zach, right now, in your opinion, and a lot's going to change, and probably the next couple weeks is going to be the, best, the biggest factor in this, do the Colts draft fourth? Are they going to stand put?
3: Dang, you put me on the spot, aren't you? Um, I'll say they do. I'll say they do because of who's making the pick, Chris Ballard. And and I think you can make a lot of arguments to, to say that, that C.J. Stroud is, is maybe a better pick, if, if you still think you can get him at four. I think it's going to be an interesting cat-and-mouse game between Nick Casario, the – the Texans GM and Chris Ballard, like, which one do they want? Because they both need quarterbacks, and they're both at the top of the draft, and it's going to be fun to watch this play out over the next several years. Who made the right pick? Because they're going to play each other twice a year. If you feel like Bryce Young's the guy, go get him. You know, this is the thing I've always mentioned is, like, what do the Chiefs give up to go get Mahomes? Nobody remembers. It doesn't matter. And I'm not saying one of these guys is Mahomes, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you give up if you get the right guy. All that matters is that you get the right guy. And, and I, there's a lot to like about T.J. Stout. He seems like a meld of the two. He's got the size. He's got some of the accuracy. You know, you like the instincts of Bryce Young, but I really worry about the size. And then Ballard has a tight, right? Look at his tight ends. They're all freaking huge. You know, look at his receivers. They're all 6'2 or taller. He had a rule, and he wouldn't even bring in Kenny Moore because he wasn't 5'10 originally. He had to be talked into it. So there's a physical specimen prototype that Ballard likes to lean on. Now, I'm not saying he's not going to lean – on Bryce Young's talent. But if he is, there's gonna, that's going to be a, a little bit of a divergence from what he's done in the past. So um, if they move on, they've got someone in mind, not two people in mind, but one person in mind. And I think it's time to do it because, you know, like I have a story coming out pretty soon about what the next few months will look like for this team. Nothing is more paramount than getting this pick right. And everyone in this town is going to rejoice when they take a quarterback, right? It doesn't matter that you take a quarterback. You have to take the right quarterback. And you have to surround them in the best possible position. And, and so many teams screw that up. The first couple of years, a guy is in their system. They don't have the right coaches. They don't have the right personnel. They don't have the right people around this guy. And they fail. And so these guys are young. They're coming in. They're essentially asked to be CEOs of a franchise. And these guys are 22. And I'm really glad I didn't have to face that because I would have done a lot, did a lot of dumb stuff. But, um that's the interesting part about this, Jake, as, as we move into the football side of it with the combine next week, it's the interviews. They're going to have 15-minute interviews. you are not going to learn hardly anything at the combine. But when they sit down with these guys at the pro days and at the interview stage, they're going to sit for a couple hours, and they're going to talk to everyone this guy's known in the last couple of years. That is, as much as anything on the football side, is going to be really important. So as a long-winded way of answering your question, I think they do stay at four but I think Ursay is going to be pushing for them to be aggressive and move up.
1: Uh, you know, here's what I've been stating, Zach, and, and then you know, you're you're a sharper guy than I, so I want you to to tell me if what I'm saying makes sense or if it's within the ballpark you think of accurate. And that is Chris Ballard's chore or challenge especially in the combine to me is going to be to figure out which is the greater quantity, the disparity in talent between the number one quarterback and potentially the third or fourth quarterback, or the amount that you would have to give up if you think that gap is big and you have to go from four to one. You have to weigh out what you would be sacrificing and whether or not that sacrifice is less than the improvement you would make from the third or fourth quarterback option to the first. I personally don't think there's that big a gap between, and I'm not an expert, I'm not a scout, but I don't think personally that the gap between Young and a Levis or Richardson, if that's the back end of that that quartet, is, is as great as the gap between the team that you have and the team that you would be giving up if you gave up a future number one and a couple of late picks.
3: Yeah, you're dead on with the second part. That is absolutely something that will happen next week. And it's probably something that's already began, to be honest, behind the scenes. Because, you know, you go back to last year, like the Russell Wilson trade that happened in mid-March. When did those conversations start? They started at the Senior Bowl in late January. And so the Senior Bowl is over. But a lot of these conversations about these blockbuster moves that will happen in the coming months, free agency and the draft, They start right here in Indianapolis next week at the combine over dinners and at Lucas Oil Stadium and and the like. So that's where the sort of seed of these trades start to happen. And I think you're right. You need to you need to decide one, what's your rough ranking of these quarterbacks and that's gonna be ongoing.
1: I mean Zach, I feel like they need it's as important to them. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but but I think tell me if you agree with this. I think it's as important for Chris Ballard to figure out who Will Levis and Anthony Richardson are, as it's as as important as that as it is to find out who Bryce Young is.
3: Absolutely, because if you're staying at four, you're getting one of those guys. Correct. And you need to figure out if that guy is a guy or if the only guy is Bryce Young, and that requires a trade-up. And then secondly, to answer your question, you need to find out how much that's going to take and how much – um, you know, Ryan Poles and the Chicago Bears want to move up. I know Bears fans want, like, seven first-round picks. That's not something Chris Ballard's done in the past. I don't think that's going to be something he's done here. But, again, this is completely different. This is not trading up a couple spots in the second round to get Jonathan Taylor, right, great player. This is a franchise quarterback. And then you also have to decide whether you scout these guys right now. It's what are, what are they going to look like in a couple years. It's not going to be necessarily who can play right away, and who's going to be your quarterback in 2023? This decision is about 25, 26, 27. This is about the next 10 years of your franchise. And whether you have to live through some ups and downs, like a guy like Will Levis probably needs a year to sit, ideally. Are you going to live through that? Do you sign a bridge quarterback? I think they do. Um, those are very much decisions they got to make. You know, is Bryce Young ready right now? But then over time, will his body give way to all the punishing hits he's going to take behind an offensive line that gave up 60 sacks. And then secondly, are you okay just punting on the 2023 season with the idea that Will Levis or whoever it is, Richardson, grows into the job? So that's going to be the fun part. But I got bad news. Valor's not going to say anything next week about this. He's going to play close to the vest like he always does. We're not going to learn anything until really April 27th.
2: Zach here from The Athletic joining us for another minute here on Kevin Inquiry. Zach, Combine is a week away. Obviously, the focal point will be quarterback for the Colts. What do you expect the next heavy presence to be at? What position group do you expect to be, have the second most uh, presence at with the Colts
3: outside of quarterback? That's a good question. I haven't even thought beyond the quarterback, to be honest. like People are like, who are they taking at number 35, which is a really good pick. It's essentially a late-round first pick, and I'm like, gosh. I don't know, like name a position they don't need help at. You know what I mean? Like they're not going to take running back and they're not going to take tight end, but um, I don't know. I don't know how you guys feel about Paris Campbell. I think you can get him back for cheap, but you always need more receivers. And I don't know how the conversations are going to go with Michael Pittman regarding an extension. He's eligible this summer, but it's a hard case study because he's produced and I think everybody knows he's a really good player, but is he a one And the number one money that these guys are getting at that position is absurd, and I just can't see Ballard paying that for a guy that's not an absolute number one. I mean, he's not in that top three or four of the league. So I could see receiver. I could see linebacker if they expect Bobby O'Carrike to sign somewhere else. Nothing would surprise me on the defensive line. You guys know how Ballard's obsessed with that unit. But, again, Stephon Gilmore is, is 32 years old, and it's not like they have a full cupboard of cornerbacks, so they could always use one of those as well.
1: Can you imagine? Edge rusher. Another one. I, I can't. I can't. I know, I know. I know.
3: It's going to be
2: interesting, that's for sure.
1: Zach, we appreciate it as always, man. Enjoy the weather today.
2: All right. Thanks, guys. All
0: right. See
1: you, man. Zach Kiefer on the Payless Liquors Hotline. You are listening to Kevin Inquiry on 9025 at 1075. The Fan. 40 minutes before the hour of 10 o'clock. Jake Curry here along with Mark Dykton. What we know is that the Colts will have a new offensive coordinator. I simply am going to call him JBC for the majority of his time here. Mark insists on calling him Jim Bob Cooter. That is his name. Uh, But he comes from Jacksonville where he was the passing game coordinator. Of course, was also offensive coordinator in Detroit. Joining us now on the Payless Liquors Hotline from Jacksonville, Mike DiRocco joins us, the ESPN Jaguars writer. I'm going to begin, Mike, with this, only because you have it on your Twitter bio. It says, usually the shortest person in the press box. Now, would that be the case if Bryce Young was also in the press box?
4: <laughs> Unfortunately for me, I think, uh, yes. Uh, Bryce Young has got me by maybe, uh, let's see, I'm five, four, so, you know, 7, 8 inches maybe, so uh, it's very unfortunate.
1: Okay. Well, you know what, I like the fact that The fact you got it on there is pretty good, though, you know. Um, (laughs) Hey, let's let's begin with this. And and I'm going to be open here, Mike, and and you tell me if I'm wrong. If someone were to call me and ask me to come on a radio program and talk about a Colts, you know, running game coordinator, you know, I'd say, well, I can tell you about the running game. I have no idea how much the coach himself was responsible for it. But you've seen a lot of different, changes in jacksonville and notably there was a change certainly in trevor lawrence this year the step that he made how much of that do you think is what indianapolis now has coming and how much of that was just the natural progression of an elite talent from year one to year two
4: yeah i think that was a little bit of both to be honest with you i think the biggest impact on trevor outside of you know him just you know, making that normal progression was Doug Peterson and that offense and the quarterback-friendly nature of that offense and the way it stressed getting the ball out quickly and the quicker reads. Um, You know, I think that was a big part of it. And, you know, the Jim Bob Cooter played a part in terms of, um, you know, being the passing game coordinator. He helped with game planning. He did some advanced scouting stuff, uh, you know, of upcoming opponents and that kind of stuff. So I mean I would say that there was obviously, you know, a lot of it on Trevor because he does have those natural gifts, but I do think that you know, the addition of Doug Peterson was a huge benefit for him.
1: And with that, so let's let's say it this way, Mike, because now he comes talking of Jim Bob Cooter as the offensive coordinator. He's not going to be calling plays for Indianapolis, but obviously he's going to have you know, the offense in this scheme is largely going to be, you know, he's, he's preparing the meal now, right? And then it's up to Shane Steichen to determine what he wants to eat that day. In terms of what you have seen of style of play, you've seen Jacksonville snap in to snap out over the course of the year. If you had to anticipate then what that means for Indianapolis, their offensive style they might lean towards would be what?
4: Uh, I guess if you want to look at it a little bit like the, uh, the old West Coast, Offense, I guess, a little bit of that. Um, you know, get the ball out quickly. There's, There are shots downfield, and they want to take shots downfield, but this isn't a downfield, throw the ball downfield all the time offense. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, misdirection and motion, and there's a lot of, you know, guys getting – uh, or crossing routes, guys sort of, uh, having option routes and having the quarterback and the receivers definitely be on the same page. Um, you know, it's, it, it takes a little bit, to be honest with you, um, to kind of get everything in place, uh, and, and to get into a rhythm. But I do think this is a rhythm offense too. And, and I saw that a lot with, with Trevor Lawrence in that second half of the year. Um, you know, he got into a rhythm in spurts during the first part of the year. But once the second half came, you know, and he got into this offense, really kind of can, can start rolling up points and yards on you. They finished tenth. Uh, or Trevor finished tenth in the NFL in terms of, you know, passing yards and you know, passer ratings. So once you kind of get rolling, it, it's got a it's very quarterback friendly, um, obviously, um, and they're helped up there. Certainly, they have a much better. Uh, run game than the Jags do here with Jonathan Taylor, um, so I think that'll even be a bigger help for the Colts.
2: It's Kevin Inquiry on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan, ESPN Jaguars reporter Mike DiRocco joining us on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Speaking of Trevor Lawrence, Mike, uh, do you think his 2022 season was elevated from uh, Doug Peterson, Press Taylor, and Jim Bob Cooter, or was it more of just getting the stink of Urban Meyer and the season before that off of his back?
4: Well, don't kid yourself. There was a lot of healing and a lot of stuff that had to take place to kind of purge that urgent Urban Meyer stuff. That was a significant part. Um, you know, talking to players in that locker room, you know, they, they were ready to embrace Doug Peterson as soon as he got there, obviously. But it was a trust thing, too, because, you know, these guys just don't want to completely accept change like that without any kind of, okay, well, you got to prove something to me first. Um, So there was an element of of Doug Peterson gaining their trust. And, you know, the the guys I talked to, and I talked to for Doug Peterson's story, I probably talked to 15 players and asked them and talked to them about that stuff. And and, and that was what they said is that he had to gain our trust, but he did it very quickly. Um, And, and look, he's got a Super Bowl winning resume. These guys know we won a Super Bowl. These guys know, and I, I say this all the time, And I don't think it gets enough credit or gets enough publicity or whatever, but he turned Carson Wentz into an MVP candidate. Um, He won a Super Bowl with Nick Foles. He outdueled Belichick and Brady with Nick Foles playing. Um, That that carries a lot of weight with me, and that certainly carried a lot of weight with those guys in the locker room. They were very, very ready um, for the kind of success that they had. But Doug Peterson – the one thing players told me, too, is that they love about him is he is the same guy every single day. There was no ups and downs like there were with Urban Meyer. Uh, there was no walking into the facility going, to, what are we going to get today? Is he going to scream at us? Is he going to yell at us? Is he going to, like, baby us? Do we have to have another, you know, 10-minute meeting on the field in the middle of practice? What what guest speaker is he bringing in today? They know exactly what they're expecting, and, and you guys know – NFL players and athletes in general love routine. And when they got into the routine uh, with Doug Peterson, you know, they really started the floor. So I think, you know, Trevor Lawrence and the offense taking off, a lot of it obviously was due to Trevor's immense talent, but a lot of it also was kind of purging that Urban Meyer um, stink off of this franchise.
1: Mike DeRocco is our guest. He's on the Payless Sickers Hotline. He is the Jaguars writer for ESPN. Mike, I want to get back to Lawrence because I watched him I'm a Clemson football fan so I watched him every play that he played in college and, and I and I know that I'm not alone in this sentiment I really felt like he had Peyton Manning level tendencies and I don't even necessarily mean because of his size his, his soft touch when he needed it and his ability to read defenses but he just had kind of this aura about himself um, it felt like that started to finally show through do we have enough body of work to know that Trevor Lawrence is here and has arrived, and that in the AFC South, everybody better be on warn? Or is it possible that this is what we've seen from Jacksonville before, where water finds its level and they they drop back down again?
4: You know, I think if you if we were talking about this, um, you know, in October, I would have said. Probably the latter. If they find some success, it won't. They won't be able to sustain it. But after watching that second half of the season um, and how well he played and how well everything clicked, um, I think this is. We're at the point right now where the Jags are the team to beat in that division because of Trevor Lawrence and because of Doug Peterson. I think we've seen enough out of Lawrence to know that. You know, is he? You know, can you sit there and say, is he going to be Peyton? Is he going to be Joe Montana? Is he going to be a Brady and win a bunch of Super Bowls? I don't know about that. But is he going to be a guy that finishes in the top five, seven in terms of passing every year um, and is regularly topping 4,000 yards? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where um, – I think that's the the bottom line of what we're going to expect um, out of Trevor Lawrence or what we're going to see out of Trevor Lawrence. I think, uh, you know, in, in the NFL nowadays, you've got to have the coach, you got to have the quarterback. And if you can only have one of those, you would rather take the quarterback. And I think the Jags are set with both. And I think Trevor Lawrence right now is ready to be a guy that – you know, is is going to? Everyone's talking about how great the ASC quarterbacks are. They're going to start including this kid now too.
1: What's the perception, Mike, of the Indianapolis Colts as a franchise, and as a, you know, in terms of just your thought process when 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 people say to you, "Indianapolis Colts," you think what in in the twenty twenty three version?
4: <sighs> I, I just keep thinking. Um, You know, there's a lot of talent there, but I just keep thinking, why can't they get the quarterback thing right? And I understand that they were caught blindsided by, um, you know, Andrew Luck's retirement. I get that. Um, But after that, it's just they're kind of caught in that no man's land because they had a team that was good enough to compete, you know, and and talented enough, I think, to win the AFC at one point. But without the quarterback, it's, it's so hard, and it's so hard to find that guy. And going the veteran route with guys at the end of their career, it, it didn't really work, obviously. Uh, you guys know, um, now I think they have a chance. My perception right now is, you know, why couldn't they get the quarterback right? Oh, well, now they've got a chance to go and get one of the better ones, uh, in, in this draft. And, and maybe that can turn things around. That's sort of when people ask me about the Colts or mention the Colts, that's what I think about right now. And, and I do feel bad too, because, you feel like one minute, one day in preseason that you're you're going to be able to compete for a title, and then the next day you're like, oh, man, one of the top five quarterbacks in the league is gone now, and I don't know what the heck we're going to do.
2: Mike Draco of ESPN Jaguars reporter, joining us on Kevin and Inquiry. The Jaguars obviously found their quarterback in Trevor Lawrence. The Colts are trying to find their version of Trevor Lawrence in this draft. I don't know how much you've looked at it, Mike, but do any of the prospects intrigue you the most that you're like, yeah, that looks like a guy you could build a franchise around and Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Will Levis, et cetera?
4: Uh, I will be honest. I haven't seen much of Will Levis, um, so I don't really want to speak about him. But I do – like I, I covered Florida for 13 years uh, before I started doing the Jaguars 10 years ago. So saw a lot of good quarterbacks in the SEC. And I love what Bryce Young did at Alabama. He was unflappable. He was a magician. Whenever they needed him to make a play, he was there to make a play. When they needed a big drive, he was there to make the big drive. And I get that he's not the biggest guy, and there's concerns about his height, and there's concerns about his weight. But, man, if you want to look at the intangible stuff, and a lot of that is stuff that, you know, people talk about, but they don't understand um, just how important that stuff can kind of be. Uh, now, does he have the physical skills? I think his arm's good enough. Um, but, man, if you're asking me which one of those quarterbacks would I want, if I were picking one, I would pick Bryce Young.
1: You know, height's overrated, Mike. We know that. Yeah, well, right. absolutely, 100%. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right?
4: Um, well, you know what? It's not like they were playing with five five offensive and defensive linemen in the SEC. Correct. I mean, he managed to complete those passes. These yeah,
1: guys, you know, so. You know, because in the SEC – and because you, as you mentioned, you covered Florida, so I would assume you still watch him a little bit. Give me your thoughts on Anthony Richardson.
4: Uh, supremely physically gifted and completely and totally scattershot on um, the accuracy, uh, the the reading of coverages, the ability to be clutch when they need him to be clutch. Um, I mean, that stuff, I, I just don't know that he has it. but. You know, he's going to show up in, what, a week and a half or, you know, two weeks whenever the quarterbacks show up at the combine and he's going to run and he's going to lift and he's going to, you know, take his shirt off and everyone's going to go, oh, my God, oh, my God. Look at this guy. He's a physical freak. um, And people are going to fall in love with him. And I just don't know that he has what it takes to be an NFL quarterback and all the other stuff. You can't. I mean, playing quarterback these days, even in the SEC, if you're – just completing fifty percent of your passes—that's that, terrible. Um, th- that you you can't be a quarterback, a starting quarterback in, in the best conference in the world, and complete like, what did he complete 53 percent of his passes this past year. I mean, you, you just—that's that, unacceptable. So, can you teach a guy to be accurate? I, I mean, maybe. Um, generally, I think guys are accurate. Um, you know, being accurate is more than just hitting the guy open. It, it's you know, in the NFL, it's tighter windows. It's making sure that that ball maybe is thrown up at a guy's head as opposed to at his chest. So, you know, I don't know if you can make a guy accurate like that. But, you know, he's a physical freak, um, and someone's going to make the investment in him. But it better be a team that doesn't have to play him right away because I think that would be the super best thing for him would be to learn for a couple of years before he's able to be uh, thrust into a starting role.
2: A week from today, the NFL world will come to Indianapolis for the scouting combine. Mike, what holes do the Jaguars need to fill uh, that they'll be looking at in the combine?
4: Yeah, corner has to be one of their top priorities. As does pass rusher. Um, you, you don't, uh, you, you cannot survive in the AFC, and you can't make a run in the AFC if you can't get to the quarterback. With those quarterbacks in that conference, it's ridiculous. You're competing with Mahomes and. Herbert and Burrow and Allen and Jackson those guys every single year you've got to be able to put pressure on the quarterback i mean it, the it, the importance of that could not be any more blatant than what happened in the super bowl didn't the eagles lead the league with 70 sacks and they didn't get to mahomes once gave up 38 points uh, you got to get to the quarterback so um the jags two main me- main needs are corner and pass rusher and at 24 probably be able to end up with a corner that you like. I don't know if an impact pass rusher will be there. So I think, uh, you know, if, if I were guessing and were, you know, at this point right now, I would say that they would probably be leaning corner at that first pick.
1: Mike, once things get underway and the season begins, we look forward to talking to you again. Certainly appreciate the time this morning. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. I right, appreciate it. Mike the ESPN writer for the Jacksonville Jaguars down in uh, the first coast, as they call it, in Jacksonville. Pretty good show today, Mark.